What you see is what you get. Hello, my name is Pastor Chris Miller, and I am your host on the PC Speaking Podcast, where we are equipping Christians for life. Hello, and welcome back to the PC Speaking Podcast. Uh, We continue on in our series this week from Patmos to Present, a vision of seven churches. I uh, hope you've been enjoying it, finding it useful. I've certainly enjoyed going through this study as we've uh, done this together. One of the things that I mentioned early on in this series was um, a picture of biblical prophecy. Um, and a, a puzzle is a great example or metaphor for Bible prophecy. You know, there's a picture to be seen in the puzzle, but you can't clearly see it until it has been finished. We can look at the individual pieces. We might find a few that fit together. We can look at those different pieces and maybe get a little bit of an idea of what's going on, but we will only be partly correct until we can see the puzzle fully put together. And in the case of Bible prophecy, we aren't the ones putting the puzzle together. We are pieces in the puzzle waiting for that puzzle to come together. We can't speed it up. We can't slow it down, but someday we will see the whole picture. And our goal in this series hasn't been to figure out so much what the puzzle is going to look like, but to look at what we should be doing while that puzzle of biblical prophecy is being put together. So that someday when we stand before Jesus, that's going to be um, as positive as it can be and be, uh, well, we want to make that less awkward, I suppose you could say, Um, less ashamed and make it a is the best we can. And we do that by living daily in obedience to Jesus. And that's what we've been looking for as we look at the uh, encouragements and warnings that Jesus gives to each of these seven churches in Asia, the things that we might do to live lives that are lived in obedience to Jesus. And today we visit the church in Philadelphia uh, from Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. We'll go ahead and read our scripture, and then we'll dig into it. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through or 7. I, sorry, not 1 through 7, 7 through 13. We're on to Philadelphia. This is what it says. It says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Say these things. I know your works. Look, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Listen, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Listen, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you, because you have kept my word of patience. I will also keep you from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon the entire world to test those who dwell on the earth. Look, I am coming quickly. Hold firmly what you have so that no one may take away your crown. He who overcomes, will I make a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this week, we are moving on to the church at Philadelphia. Uh, This is about 45 kilometers southeast of Sardis, um, 30-ish miles maybe. 
depending on what system you use. Uh, the city may have been founded by a man named Atlas Philadelphus, who was king of Pergamum. Um, that was, oh, I don't know, probably 140 to 160 years before Jesus, but that's not completely certain. It seems that this, uh, the city of Philadelphia was on the edge of a very active uh, volcanic area and suffered a lot from earthquakes. Both Philadelphia and Sardis were destroyed around 17 AD by volcanic activity. And Philadelphia was rebuilt, still exists today, but under a different name. Sometimes we might wonder why people would stay and live where they do, especially in a volcanic area. Um, but apparently the soil in the area was very productive, so much so that people stayed in the area in spite of the occasional earthquake. At the end of the 14th century, it was the last Byzantine city, Philadelphia was, to surrender to the Turks. And it made better terms than any of the others did. I read that Philadelphia retained the privilege of free Christian worship with the use of bells for service and processions in public, a thing allowed by the Turks in no other inland city of Asia Minor. So they had kind of some special privilege in Philadelphia. Um, but that was book that I was reading that in was actually written in 1909. And today, Turkey is 99% Islam or over, well, around 99%. And the population of Christians in Turkey has dropped from about 25% when that book was written in 1909 to about 0.5% today. So definitely a, a big drop in Christianity in uh Turkey over the past, yeah, 100 years, well over 100 years now. When this was written, this these early Christians may have been persecuted uh, by pagans to a degree, but were definitely persecuted by a colony of Jewish people living in Philadelphia. Uh, they were not persecuted by Islam because Islam wouldn't exist until several hundred years after this, around uh, 610 A.D., but as Jesus addresses the church at Philadelphia, this is how he refers to himself. You might remember as we've gone through this, he refers to himself in a different way as he addresses each of these different churches. And this is how he refers to himself when he speaks to the church at Philadelphia. He says, he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens says these things. Uh, that's quite the introduction. I really like that. It sounds kind of like a riddle, but it's not really. He who is holy, the one who is set apart, completely separate from evil, the God whose nature harmonizes with his name, says these things. The one who has the key of David to the throne of David, the key to the new Jerusalem, the keys of hell and death, the one who has exclusive power in these things, says these things. The one who can shut the door, no one can open, and open a door no one can shut, says these things. And then after that introduction, as he does with each church, he says, I know your works. And that introduction would certainly cause people to sit up and take notice, maybe in hope, maybe in fear. Unfortunately for the church at Philadelphia, Jesus says, look, I have set before you an open door 
and no one can shut it. And as I was reading this, I thought about how often we hear Christians use language like that. The Lord opens and closes doors. You can find that in uh, other parts of scripture as well. Now, when you read that, if you're like me, maybe like many Christians who read that, you're probably wondering what's on the other side of that door that Jesus has set before them that no one can shut. Well, we'll walk through that door in a little bit, or at least we'll attempt to. But let's talk about the door itself first. It's it's obviously a metaphor. It's not a physical door. It represents something else. Jesus is pleased with this church. He is very pleased with this church, probably more so than any of the others. He's encouraging the Philadelphians, and not only encouraging them, he is setting something before them. Remember, he was pleased with the church at Smyrna, but he didn't do that. He didn't set something before them like he does with Philadelphia. When Jesus says, I have set this door before you, something to understand about that is more than just a door where he's saying, here, walk through this door, all that that is the case. Jesus is giving the church at Philadelphia a gift. This is something special, a door that has been opened for them and no one can shut it. And there is something through that door. Up front, the scripture you know, doesn't explain exactly what that is, but I think we can be pretty confident about what it is. And we'll talk about that more in a few minutes. But at the beginning of the, the next sentence, Jesus says, you only have a little strength, but that's not a negative critique. Jesus is telling his church, they've done well, with what little bit they have. Jesus says, with what little strength you have in the midst of difficulty, you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Again, this church would look like they were doing it tough on the outside, but Jesus commends them for doing well. And that's just another reminder for us that you really can't look at a church from the outside and judge the spiritual condition. Um, Philadelphia, had used what little strength they had, and they'd done well with it, even though they would have looked weak from the outside. Two other scriptures come to mind when I read that. One is from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul prays about his thorn in the flesh. I believe that's verses seven through 10 there, and I don't know exactly what that thorn is, but Paul pleaded with the Lord to remove it But Paul told God, or God told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul prayed and asked God to remove whatever was holding him back. And I'm not saying this is how that prayer went because I don't know, but I'm contemplating how it could have gone to illustrate a point. Um, I can imagine Paul praying to God and saying something along the lines of, Lord, if you would only remove what is hindering me, I could do so much more for you. And I probably say that because that's how I might pray about something that hinders me. But the struggle in a prayer like that is twofold. One is a lack of understanding of how God uses suffering to help us grow. And you often hear people say, well, if God is good, why does he allow suffering in the world? The problem with that um, reasoning is that they don't, understand that suffering has value, or if you say something like that, you would have to think that suffering has no value, which is not true at all. Um, Suffering grows us, it shapes us, it helps us uh, become better, and God uses uh, 
uses suffering to help us mature. Now, the other um, struggle with this, the way Paul answers that is he says, I could, you know, I could do so much more. I could do it. If that were the case, it would be a matter of Paul doing things with his own strength instead of relying on the Lord. Um, Some people could do a lot in their own strength, considering his education, his background, Paul was one of those people. Had he not been hindered in some way, he could have built a large following through his own ability. And there are very many very competent people who can do a lot on their own, but we're talking about God's kingdom and churches. And I think Psalm 127 is very applicable in what we're talking about. It says, except the Lord build the house, those who build labor in vain. So we're thinking about Philadelphia, their weakness, how they had stewarded stewarded what little they had to remain faithful to the Lord. And Paul, in his struggle with his thorn in the flesh, he came to an understanding and he said, so I take pleasure in weakness, in reproaches and hardships and persecutions and in distresses for Christ's sake, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. He came to understand how the Lord's strength is made complete in his own weakness. Now, the other scripture that comes to mind when I read about the church of Philadelphia is the parable of the talents, Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. A master is leaving his home to travel and he gives some of his property to each of his servants, gives them talents, and he expects them to put his property to good use. And he gives to each servant in proportion to the ability of each servant. And he doesn't give it to them to keep for themselves. He gives it to them to multiply for him. And eventually he returns. He takes stock of how each servant has stewarded his property. And when he sees how that has gone, he expands the responsibilities of the ones who did well and he punishes the ones who did not do well. The master was the provider of the resources and he retained ownership and he expected his servants to take what they had and do something with it. In the church of Philadelphia, They only had a little strength, but they used it well. They did something with it. They remained faithful. And the Church of Philadelphia, even today, is referred to as the patient church, the faithful church, an enduring church, the church that persevered. Now, what does it mean to do those things, to endure, to persevere? Um, Jesus says it means they kept his word and they did not deny his name. They remained loyal to Jesus in both thoughts and actions in the face of difficulty, even though they were weak. Now, because of that, Jesus encourages and commends this church more than any other in the seven churches of Asia. So much so that the Lord gives them the gift of an open door. Now, what lies beyond the door? There's no direct explanation in scripture um, as to what uh, is beyond the door. At least, at least in context, I suppose. But there is biblical precedent to help give us an idea of what this means for the church at Philadelphia. In scripture, when we see um, doors, open doors, closing doors, um, the ability to open and close doors represents authority. And we've already established that Jesus has that authority. This um, passage of scripture is very clear about that. Paul, the apostle Paul speaks about 
opened doors a few times in other passages. There are a few examples, but one example is from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, where Paul says, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord. An open door in scripture is most often an opportunity for new ministry and greater ministry. And because the church of Philadelphia remained faithful and endured, even though things were difficult, Jesus opened the door to more and greater ministry. Like the parable of the talents, uh, the master rewards the faithful servant. And Philadelphia was a faithful church. And this door being opened to greater ministry is a reward for their faithfulness. Now, why does holding fast to the word of God in the name of Jesus lead to greater service? There's a reason for that. Of course, it pleases Jesus when we do that, and that's reason enough in and of itself. There's also another reason for that. And I believe Jesus wants to give his followers, his churches all over the world an open door of ministry opportunity. But the faithfulness to his name and his word need to be in place first. And not only do they need to be in place, they need to stay in place. There are things that must be in place before you can handle more and bigger things. And it also needs to be the case that those things will remain in place. And then Jesus opens the door to greater ministry service. I don't remember how old I was. I was maybe, I don't know, 10 or 12 years old. Now, these things, as I talk about them, as I get older, my memory gets more foggy. But I had a good friend when I was a young fella named Jim, and he stayed on the farm with me a lot. We weren't, when we weren't doing chores on the farm, we were looking for creative ways to fill our time. And that can be uh, an interesting thing, maybe even a dangerous thing for boys that age. Not far from where I lived, there was a large canal um, called the New York Canal. And it was the main artery through the countryside that carried irrigation water to smaller canals and then ditches and, and fields throughout the area. And it had concrete sides and it was, it was dangerous because if you fell in, it was very difficult to get out again. And, you know, back then there just weren't the fences and safety features and all the things there are today. But it wasn't far from where I lived that the New York Canal turned into Indian Creek. And Indian Creek was just kind of a wild river running through the countryside, much more natural than the canal was. And the place where that happened, where the New York Canal turned into Indian Creek, was called the Cunamore Drop. And it was, you know, just outside of Cuna. I think it was on Cunamore Road, and it was a drop, and I think that's why it was called that. Or that was what we called it. I don't know if that was his official name or anything like that. But it wasn't a waterfall, but the water flowed um, very quickly, and it dropped several meters in a relatively short distance. And because of that, it was pretty substantial, rapid. Um, there were lots of rocks and boulders and things. And after about, I don't know, maybe the first hundred meters of fast and rough water, the creek ran into a rock wall and the water would smash up against it. And then it made a 90 degree turn to the right. And then the water uh, dropped substantially again from there. And again, it wasn't quite a falls, but it was, it was pretty rough and it was pretty wild water. <clears throat> probably even a little bit dangerous. And my friend and I came up with a brilliant idea of we were going to build a raft and we would shoot the drop in our homemade raft. And of course, you know, every 
12-year-old boy is a budding engineer. And we designed our raft as we built it. We found some large plastic drums that were just perfect. And they were previously used to hold iodine, but that's another story. We also found a sheet of plywood, and I can't remember if it was uh, three or four, but whatever the number was, these drums sat well under a piece of plywood, under a sheet of plywood. And unfortunately, I, I knew I wasn't allowed to put any holes in these drums, so I couldn't do that. So we had to figure out how to attach these large plastic barrels to our plywood. And one of the things we had on the farm was an endless supply of baler twine, the twine that was used to hold hay bales together. And we had we had tons of it. Um, we had a lot of animals that we fed, and so we were always chopping uh, these strings, this twine off of hay bales. And it held many projects of my childhood together. I remember my younger brother, he used to build tomahawks and all kinds of things, and it always involved baler twine. It was very strong. So it was suitable for many things. And we used it to lash our plywood to our plastic drums. And, you know, the barrels were a little bit floppy on there, but it seemed okay. And we decided that our raft could potentially tip over. So we made some outriggers as well. We found some smaller barrels for outriggers and we found a piece of long and narrow plywood. And we tied that to the raft and then the smaller barrels to that. And the structural integrity of our outriggers was questionable. They flopped up and down kind of like the wings of a bird. And we probably invested, I don't know, the better part of an hour into carefully engineering all of this and putting it together. And we hadn't considered anything quite so complicated as steering or oars. We figured we'd just put it in the water and uh, everything would be okay. Just hope for the best, I suppose. But it was too far to carry our raft down to the drop where we wanted to launch. We needed a a way to get there. And we went to my dad and we explained our plans to shoot the drop in our homemade raft or on our homemade raft and that we needed to get ourselves to the raft and down to the drop, get our raft down there. We needed a ride. And like any sensible and responsible parent, uh, of course, he looked at us and said, sure. And I think he saw some potential entertainment value in what was about to happen. So we loaded it up and we hauled our watercraft down to our launch site. And now, as I tell this story, I, I'm afraid some of you might be a little disappointed with how this story ends, but we got our raft to the launch site. We eased into the water. And the water was still fast and dangerous, even at our launch site. And if you've done something similar, you're going to understand what happened next. But as we put the raft in the water, and hopped on almost instantaneously, our raft lost its structural integrity. There's something about water that does that. It will pull things apart so quickly. Once it hit the water, it just came apart. If things aren't lashed together properly, yeah, it's, it's just not gonna last. And fortunately, this happened earlier rather than later, and we could rescue ourselves and all the pieces of the raft. And we didn't make it that day, obviously. We failed. Uh, we didn't even really get down the river. We just got in the water, things fell apart, and we had to uh, pull ourselves out. We didn't give up, though. We later returned, went back, and tried it with uh, inner tubes from car tires, and we did it. Matter of fact, we floated many miles of the creek. And there was barbed wire stretched across the creek and rocks and rapids and all kinds of other things, and we were dumped out many times along the way. I actually learned to swim in that creek. 
but the integrity of our raft was lacking. Um, once it was in the turbulent water, it came apart very, very quickly. The strength of the baler twine wasn't the problem. It was more than strong enough. Um, the problem was our engineering job. And as we look at the different churches addressed in the book of Revelation, there's a common thread in the encouragements and warnings that Jesus gives to each of these seven churches. And they all relate back to basically the same thing. Whether it's an encouragement or a warning, it's, it's, it's related to the same thing. The tie that holds the church together is Jesus in the gospel and in his word. In the strength of Jesus, the gospel, and his word, you know, they're always the same. But whether or not we hold tight to those things and how we apply them, well, that's up to us. And that can change. Where those things become too loose or unimportant, things will unravel and they'll come apart. Things will begin to drift apart. We see that in some of the warnings Jesus gives to these different churches where he's telling them, you know, Go back to where you used to be. Go back to where you came from. If you don't tighten up your grip on these things and apply them properly, you're going to unravel. You'll fall apart. You will eventually dissolve. Your church will cease to exist. And they may pretend to be a church for a while, but like the church uh, we spoke about last week, Sardis, they're, they're dead. The wealth, the budget, programs, uh, the personal abilities of the people are, are good things and, and the Lord can use all of those things, but they're not what builds or holds the church together. And if a church doesn't first do what Jesus praises the church at Philadelphia for, keeping his word, not denying his name, it's gonna unravel at some point. And it's, you know, it happens a lot. It's happened a lot over uh, church history. It's nothing new and maybe You've been in a situation where you've seen that happen. You've seen a church just kind of gradually drift and fall apart. So how do we hold fast and not deny the name of Jesus? Because I don't want that for my church, and I'm sure you feel the same way. Well, hold fast means we cling to Jesus. We resolve to walk with Jesus in faith, despite doubts that may occasionally come along. We trust in him for salvation. We keep the gospel central to what we do. We avoid sin personally. Uh, we cling to Jesus. We rely on him and not our own abilities and resources. And when we hold fast to Jesus, then he can use our resources and abilities as he sees fit. Leverage what you have for his glory through obedience to him, even if it's only a little bit. That's what Philadelphia did. They only had a little bit they had a little strength, they were weak, but they leveraged what strength they had to hold fast to the name of Jesus and his word. And we need to do that. Hold fast to Jesus, relying on his strength instead of our own. And that means if we do that, that he can open the door to greater ministry like he did in Philadelphia. And sometimes we wonder what happened with these different churches, at least I do, you know, where what was their history after this? Did they turn back? I mean, there's, you know, tradition and some things that say some of them did, some of them may not have. Um, sometimes we wonder what happened with these different churches and different churches throughout history. The things that Jesus says to these seven churches of Asia have broad applications, but remember that these are real churches, real places, real people. And in verse nine, Jesus says, listen, 
I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Listen, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. So here's my interpretation of that passage. And, you know, this is my interpretation. And I, you know, think this is probably the case. There was a Jewish colony in Philadelphia that gave the church a lot of grief. They were persecuted. Um, With the Roman siege and destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD, the colony would have grown. A lot of Jewish people would have left Jerusalem, scattered, you know, and they, some of them would have ended up in Philadelphia. And I think what happened is Jesus opened a door of ministry for the church at Philadelphia to that colony of Jews. And there were some, if not many, who came to know Christ and to worship with the believers in the church in Philadelphia. They became Christians. And when they did, you know, knowing how they had persecuted these Christians, um, they came with their hat in their hand. They were very humble. You know, you can think of some good examples of that. My own testimony is similar to something like that. The Apostle Paul, you know, he persecuted Christians. Jesus got a hold of him and he turned around completely. And I think maybe what that means, that open door that Jesus set before the church at Philadelphia was a door of ministry to that colony of Jewish people. And some of them were converted and they came and were part of the church of Philadelphia and were quite humble because of the way they had treated them in the past. And there's a good lesson in that for us to remember as you know, contemporary Christians. I, you know, I spend a lot of time on social media talking to different people. And it's a common thread to hear believers complain about the world and how terrible things are. And it's just so awful out there. And I just don't, you know, nobody ever sees any turning back or things are so bad. And, you know, the problem with that kind of an attitude and looking at the world and thinking things are, oh, they're just beyond repair. You know, things are so bad. Nobody goes to church anymore. Uh, Nobody wants to follow the Lord anymore. Nobody wants to hear truth anymore. All of those kinds of things. The problem with that kind of thinking is that that kind of attitude is really a manifestation of trying to rely on our own strength and ministry, which just isn't going to work. We have to rely on the Lord and an attitude that talks about the world and, you know, oh, it's so terrible and this, that, and the other. Really, that's a manifestation of that kind of, of philosophy on ministry in our own power because the Lord can always change things. He can always do something more. You know, look at the way he changed the Apostle Paul. My own personal testimony is like that. These Jews in Philadelphia who persecuted the church there, you know, many of them may have been converted. That's my theory. And they came to worship in the church there. And that does not happen when people rely on their own strength. That's how the Lord works. People can't do that. People can't build a church. Um, They can't make church happen. Uh, especially not a weak one, but Jesus can open the door to that kind of ministry. So that's the thought I want to leave you with this week. Jesus can always open the door to ministry, even in a situation that might look hopeless to us. We have to remember, it's not our strength, but it's the strength of the Lord. 
you know, like we said from Psalm uh, 127, you know, the, if it's not the Lord who builds the house, uh, they who build it labor in vain. Well, thanks again for tuning in this week. I certainly appreciate you guys. I appreciate you guys and look forward to talking to you with you again soon. Thank you for taking the time to listen today. Let me know what you think in the comments. Please consider subscribing and sharing this with someone who might find it helpful. 